So hello and welcome to Osborne Clark's Future of Financial Services podcast. Um, this series is inspired by our annual Future of Financial Services Week, where we explore challenges and solutions in this rapidly changing sector. My name is Sirene Thomas, and I'm a senior knowledge lawyer in the Financial Institutions Group at Osborne Clark. In our first episode today, we're discussing the Money 2020 Global FinTech event, which took place in Amsterdam earlier this month. The agenda around the gamut from payments, digital assets and open finance through to financial crime and, of course, regulation. I'm joined by four Osborne Clark FinTech partners who attended the event. Um, Nikki Warden, who heads the Financial Institutions Group, specialising in consumer finance. Paul Anning, who leads the international payments practice. Paul Harris, a financial services regulatory expert specialising in payments, and James Taylor, who advises on the private equity and venture capital markets. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. So I think we wanted to kick off um, just by asking, sort of putting out the question of what was a key theme that you picked up on during the conference? Obviously, there was a huge amount going on. Um, and, you know, an in-person event, which some of us are not so used to after the big shutdown of the pandemic. So from the events and your conversations with other delegates, um, what was a key theme that you picked up on during the conference? And shall we kick off with Paul Harris? Thanks, Arian. Um, and yes, uh, I would say there was a real buzz uh, around the place at, at Money 2020 this year. Um, lots of uh, exciting uh, new opportunities for, for lots of people and actually uh, lots of great uh, innovative ideas that we came across. Uh, I think one key theme that I was picking up is there seems to be a, a growing trend for what I would call uh, kind of as a service type offerings. It could be banking as a service or kind of financial crime monitoring as a service, data as a service, okay. essentially segmenting part of a payments or banking businesses activities and third parties being able to provide that service into, for example, a regulated bank or regulated payment service provider. Yeah. And I think what is interesting is that at a time from a regulatory perspective, regulators around Europe in particular are focusing more on uh, outsourced activities and the oversight of regulated businesses of those outsourced activities. There seems to be a growing trend for more outsourced providers to provide these as a service type functions. And in particular, we saw quite a lot of banking as a service type activities. And in fact, two or three of the largest and most prominent stands were banking as a service providers. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly a growing trend where businesses with a fantastic tech stack want to, uh, I suppose, leverage that tech stack uh, as much as possible, rather than just using it for their own kind of customer, direct-to-customer, public-facing activities. Uh, so that was one of the key things that I picked up, certainly. Yeah. Okay. That's a really interesting trend. And I think um, that's definitely something that we're seeing across the firm um, and people kind of grappling with the issues there and regulators maybe trying to keep pace with the increased risk that might kind of arise potentially in the um, in the financial sector. Um, and then I'm just going to pass it over to Nikki. Yeah, I was just actually before I talk about what, what I noticed, I was just going to say what's really interesting about that, Paul, isn't it? Is that um, you're offering banking as a service, you're offering an outsource service, but from a regulatory perspective, 
you're offering the regulated service. So the, the customer, it's your responsibility, certainly from an FCA perspective in the UK, but I would imagine that's very similar across the across the, across the world, really. Um, and so I don't know how that tension is going to play out because you're offering a product which is and providing a service, but then when you actually get down to the gritty, those customers are, are to, to all intents and purposes, your banking customers. Correct. Interesting, yep, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, but so from my perspective, so exciting to be at Money 2020. Fantastic event. Lots of people, all nationalities, all the languages in the world you could hear as you walked around. It was just a really exciting atmosphere um, and great to be in Amsterdam. Um, from my perspective, um, obviously, I do a lot of work in both the buy now pay later space for consumers and also in the um, uh, I suppose buy now pay later space for um, small businesses. But it's now sort of all been put under this umbrella of embedded finance. And there was lots and lots of chat about embedded finance. And all embedded finance is really, it's not new. It's offering finance in a customer journey. I think the reason why it's exploded is because the number of platforms and online journeys has, has exploded because so much now is done on a platform basis and so many um, providers of payment services are out there and it's very easy now to, to offer finance as part of your package. And what's the driver for all of that? Data. So these merchant acquirers are sitting on so much data, payment processes sitting on so much data, which of course is really useful when you're deciding whether you can offer finance. Uh, so it's a really, it's a match made in heaven, I think. And uh, lots of exciting buzz around embedded finance at Money 2020. Great. Um, I think, um, yeah, that definitely resonates with quite a lot of um, things that we've been seeing across the firm in terms of firms looking to unlock the value of their customer data. Um, so moving over to Paul Anning, um, I don't know if um, you fell, found a lot of conversations going on about open finance and open banking at the event this year? Absolutely, we did. And to pick up a couple of the points sort of made earlier, it, it was hugely international. And that comes through both in terms of us uh, taking our own fantastic team. So multidisciplinary in the sense that we had both regulatory lawyers in payments, fintech and crypto, but also a specialist in M&A and P and VC investment, which really went down a storm talking to different sort of uh, contacts and uh, firms involved in the whole sort of ecosystem. And also then working with our colleagues that joined us from the sort of UK, Germany, France, Belgium, uh, and the Netherlands, of course, who were there, which was just fantastic. And bringing those different perspectives follows through to the point Nikki's just made around data, but in relation to open banking in particular. Huge excitement around open banking because the UK has been the lead there. It's been in place for about five years now, and the infrastructure is now well and truly tested. So there's real sort of excitement that actually we could be at a tipping point where it's going to take off, either in new use cases, in areas around a sort of variable recurring payments as an alternative to cards, and a sort of, I'll call them sort of typical funds transfers, but also then internationally. And many other countries are looking at what has happened in relation to open banking, thinking, can we use the data element or the pay element to advance our national infrastructure and how we develop payments going forward? And an awful lot of the commentary was coming very much from the basis of where are we starting from? 
to then look forward and how they're going to adapt open banking. So, for example, Australia has taken a sort of route of very much focusing open banking on the retail consumer sort of aspect rather than on all sort of payment accounts. Other countries that are less reliant on cards are looking at it straight away as a sort of means of making payments at merchant sort of um, point of sale. So it, coming at it from different perspectives and international, but at the core, open banking enables A, greater use of data and B, a payment alternative that is very easy to use at mobile source. Yeah, I have actually used open banking for the first time myself recently. I think HMRC has an ability to pull payments out of your account to pay mm. your tax bill, um, which I guess in that case removes the worry about the fat finger error and your tax bill disappearing into um, the ether, which is always a worry. And HMRC has been at the forefront of the use of sort of open banking. It's the government department that has used it and promoted it and does, as you say, actually use it, which is fab. Yeah, no, exactly. So personal experience there. Um, great. OK, well, it sounds like definitely the theme of internationalisation coming out. Obviously, it's a great opportunity to get not only colleagues from across Osborne Clark together, but also to meet clients and sort of other law firms and other kind of service providers in a very kind of global forum as well, which is great. Um, so then um, I think another theme that I was certainly reading about a lot um, in the context of this event, obviously also more widely, is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning and how that um, impacts the financial services industry. So James, how have you seen the industry kind of reacting to that? And what's, what were the conversations about Money 2020? Yeah, I think, I think no one probably was particularly surprised that AI and machine learning were pretty strong themes through a lot of the conversations that were going on at Money 2020. And I think the thing that struck me the most was just the variety of use cases that exist for AI machine learning within FinTech. So you saw a lot of startup scale-ups and, and new market entrants looking to use AI to disrupt various parts of, of the fintech market, from data security through to fraud detection, and um, also through to things you know more straightforward like customer service uh, and, and credit scoring. But um, it was really interesting to see that breadth of, of use cases, as I say. And um, what was also quite striking though was that that theme was not exclusively relevant to the newer market entrants. Mm -hmm. So you saw actually those conversations going on with some of the more established players within the, um, the fintech space as well and, and the wider financial services market. Um, and in particular, I, I was at a, a talk that HSBC's UK CEO, Ian Stewart, um, spoke about, and he mentioned his personal support for the increased use of AI within the financial services market. So to hear you know, HSBC speaking in that way, and I think that the phrase he used was to um, let the people do the extraordinary and let the computers do the ordinary was the kind of way that he summed it up. Nice. Um, but, you know, clear, clearly, even the more established um, businesses, there's, there's, a, there's a huge opportunity for them to use AI machine learning to automate so much of the, the back end process and, and yeah, allow the people to do the more interesting stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. Passing over to Paul Harris. Yes, well, just picking up on that AI theme, I think uh, a lot of the conversations I had with people uh, at Money 2020 began with the phrase, we are beginning to see in relation to AI. And I think what that really demonstrates is that businesses understand the potential for AI and machine learning, but are only beginning to unlock its potential. And we, we're definitely the start of the journey, and it's definitely something that businesses of all shapes and sizes, as James said, 
are, are really looking at you know what what can they unlock within their value chain that actually AI and machine learning can 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 really improve, and there will be a lot more in this space. I think. One example of that that was certainly talked about is the use of AI in behavioural biometrics in terms of authenticating um, a payer. And the idea of that is it makes the whole customer journey so much more sort of fluid, more convenient and easier. And I think it's those sort of uses of AI that sit behind the scenes that enable faster checkouts or sort of ease of authentication that we'll see. I also had a couple of conversations with people uh, where they were using AI or beginning to use AI in uh, AML transaction monitoring. And some of the results that they're beginning to see, some of the patterns that AI is picking up that humans weren't picking up was really interesting. And I think there's a lot more room for, for growth and for development in that space. Absolutely. And the following on from that, the other area that we have already seen use of AI is in sort of identifying money mules where it's funds are moved from one account to another. So as you say, sort of Paul and James, the there's a huge amount of AI sort of use cases yet to sort of flow through. One of the areas we've not touched on, which people didn't really talk about much at the conference, sorry, was regulation. Understandable because it's not a terribly sexy subject, but it is so pervasive to everything we do and it underpins all of this. And one of the sort of things that has happened, for example, around open banking, we hope will happen around AI, is that regulation allows it to develop. So it provides the flexibility and the framework for it to be used in the right way, uh, rather than it being an obstacle to that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of crypto sort of players were not as prevalent sort of this time at Money 2020 compared to previous is because a lot of them slightly scared away by the regulation, also what's happened in terms of the crypto winter. But my plea around regulation is for it to be pragmatic and facilitating rather than a blocker to um, future development. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about the kind of the reg tech and the use of tech, say, in the anti-money laundering space, I know it's definitely something that the UK regulators are keen to try and promote, to try and harness um, sort of the, yeah, the, the potential in something like machine learning to try and help firms detect suspicious activity and to try and take a bit of pressure off kind of back office functions, maybe free people up to do other things um, while maintaining oversight of it. So definitely interesting to see how the regulators continue to respond to this kind of incredible pace of change that we're seeing. And I think one of the, the challenges for the for, for the market players out there is, I don't, I don't know whether you noticed this, but there were just so many stands with people promoting different AML software mm -hmm. and how you would decide how you approach your AML. Because we've already got, you know, in a situation where we have to decide what our own risk appetite is, right? And then you have to decide what software helps you uh, make an appropriate assessment based on your own risk appetite. And there's such a lot of choice out there. And, and as you say, the pace of change and development is so fast. It's actually quite a challenge, I think, for clients to, to get that right. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think um, one of the other themes that I know you were thinking about, James, is obviously how um, players in this sector are thinking about fundraising against the backdrop of this kind of incredible um, regulatory and uh, commercial change, but also the kind of prevailing economic headwinds. Is that something you could speak to? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's an issue that's, I guess, affecting not just fintechs, but kind of wider players within the, the sort of other tech markets. Um, but 
like a lot of other markets, fintech peaked for fundraising in, in 2021, and we saw a significant slowdown um, last year. We have seen some uptick versus last year in, in the first quarter of this year, um, which I think you know is promising. But as I say, that that cooling of the market is not strictly tr- just just down to um, fintech itself. It's sort of indicative of the wider um, investment community at the moment. Um, and and I, I support businesses from early stage startups looking at venture capital through to scale up companies looking at growth capital and later stage businesses um, using private equity markets. So looking kind of across all of those different um, spheres, um, we, I think fintech does quite well as a as an opportunity um, across all of those markets. Um, we're seeing it probably ranking up there alongside um, more general software um, as one of the key areas for investment that, that investors are keen to, to, to look at. Um, and I think projections for, for fundraising for the rest of the year indicate that whilst we probably won't reach the, the peak we saw in 2021, that the second half of the year is likely to see a rebounding in the fundraising markets, which would probably mean that they will exceed the 2020 levels, which was also a pretty healthy year um, for, for fintech fundraising. So, um, I think the other thing I would say is that it's not kind of obviously one unified market. FinTech is a, it's a massive um, industry with so many different sub areas. And we're seeing quite clearly that different types of FinTech businesses are finding it easier than others at the moment. So B2B businesses, as a very, very broad generalization, are finding it generally a little bit easier than maybe B2C companies at mm-hmm. the moment. And um, so those that are looking on the you know, business to business rather than the consumer markets. But as I say, there are obviously lots of exceptions that disprove that um, that rule as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think investors at the moment are looking at opportunities to invest in businesses with recurring revenues. And so, as, as Paul mentions, you know, software as a service and other as a service models that allow subscription models that have fixed recurring revenues with long-term customer subscriptions are always going to be of interest to to investors. So, I think those type of players in the fintech market will will. You know, be able to to, to ride the, the way better, um, and yeah, as I say, lots of different focus areas, but in particular, um, payment solutions and uh, things around lending um, are continuing to attract quite a lot of uh, venture capital money, in particular. So, mm-hmm. as I say, a tougher market clearly than it was maybe two years ago, but I think people are relatively positive that things will start to improve, and. I think the way that companies are approaching that depends again on their on their fundraising status. But you know, we, we're supporting a lot of businesses that are fundraising at the moment, and a lot of those that are planning for fundraisers. So um, it's 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 certainly not all doom and gloom as sometimes the press seems to make it look. There, there are definitely opportunities out there, and plenty of investors that are willing to deploy capital into great businesses. Can I ask a question, James? Mm. So you mentioned B2B and versus B2C. Is that a combination of factors? Um, I mean, I'm thinking from a B2C perspective, there's concern about consumer response to the financial crisis, maybe spending less, um, more regulation, perhaps, um, more political focus on consumer protection. I mean, why, why, why do you think there'll be, be less interest in B2C type uh, markets as opposed to B2B? Yeah, I think it's a combination of those factors. But I think the first one you mentioned probably is the one that I'm hearing or seeing the most. I think investors at the moment are, as I say, looking at maybe slightly taking slightly less risk or yeah. where there's, I mean, investors don't like unpredictability. So as you mentioned, in terms of the current inflation situation, cost of living, I mean, the consumer spending is quite hard to predict over a sort of medium to long term basis. Um, and so if you have fintechs that are focused on consumer spending, if they are payment solutions, for example, you know, they're kind of you know, um, 
e-commerce-based um, fintech plugins, then clearly your success is going to be heavily driven by the amount of consumer activity. On the flip side, clearly there are opportunities for B2C businesses that are looking to help those people who are going through that um, that difficult time. So businesses that are helping um, individuals with consumer finance and and, um, lending opportunities, using the likes of AI to help create more accurate risk scoring and credit scoring activities. You know, we're seeing quite a lot of interest in in businesses in that space. So as I say, wouldn't want to tar it with the same brush, but generally speaking, I think the the sort of B2B solutions that allow for that more uh, ability to plug into businesses looking to save costs and streamline their businesses is is generally something that um, investors are looking more so at than the, the B2C at the moment. I think the other reason, James, is that there's a network effect that comes with B2B that actually you can rely on the underlying sort of supplier to create a network, whether that's of different payment channels or out to different international countries or the sort of reach in terms of the underlying sort of service providers. And I think it's that combination where they aggregate those services that means you as a customer coming in can just plug into that. You have one provider that you work with and then you can concentrate on your client relationship while relying on that one provider to aggregate all the underlying service providers or to provide the network of where you wish payments to be collected from or sent to. I think that for them is a real sort of benefit. Great. Well, I think it sounds like we've got a lot of opportunities out there. Um, As James says, it's definitely not all doom and gloom, despite what we might be seeing in the press about kind of um, the, you know, economic um, turmoil ahead. Um, And that there's lots of opportunities within this sector specifically and tech more broadly, alongside, obviously, a plethora of challenges which firms need to kind of get their heads around. Um, And yeah, which is keeping everyone very busy. So I think we're just going to move on to one. One last thing, which is a section where we take a brief look at a recent development you may have missed. So yesterday, we saw the Bank of England's response on mandatory reimbursement for a certain type of payment fraud, known as authorised push payment fraud, which essentially happens where someone is tricked into sending money to a fraudster who's posing as a genuine payee. So the bank plans to implement measures for reimbursement of victims of this type of fraud using the CHAPS payment system which is comparable to those the payments regulator has just proposed for the faster payment system. And this means that when settling consumer payments, um, such as deposits for your house purchase, which you definitely don't want to go missing, um, CHAPS direct participants are going to need to implement mandatory reimbursement from Q1 next year, um, split 50-50 between sending and receiving payment service providers. So tackling APP fraud is a top priority for the industry as record amounts are being lost to this type of fraud each year by consumers. So it's key for firms to work towards compliance. Thanks very much for listening to the Future of Financial Services podcast. You can subscribe for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts.